A very warm welcome to This World Game Changers podcast, where your host, Paul D. Lowe, embraces many crucial conversations that compassionately contribute towards creating a better life and world. Paul's intention is very simple, to help get people's inspirational insights and motivational messages out into the world so others may benefit. Hello, World Game Changers, and welcome to this podcast episode. And today we are going to be talking about angels with dirty faces, and more specifically, who am I? And to help us in that process is is myself, obviously, Gary Clark, and our question master, if that's even the right terminology to use, Keith Amos, a good friend of mine from Luxembourg. Keith, without further ado, who am I? <laughs> if you don't know by now, Paul, then we're in a really difficult position, aren't we? Uh, welcome, guys. Uh, we had a bit of technical problems, didn't we, to to uh, to get this together. Um, Zoom was playing up, so uh, that's given us a bit of added tension, which is never bad when it comes to talking. It's raised the juices, as they say. Angels with dirty faces. Gary, um, I'd like to come to you first. Um, what the heck is that title all about for a book? Uh, all right, uh, Keith, nice to see you again. Um, well, it's like an idea from Paul, really. During COVID, we had lots of chats, lots of Zoom meetings, and uh, obviously Paul's done a lot of books, 11, 12. I've done and been involved in books, and I met Paul Cotton Town three or four, three, four years ago at a fundraiser. Anyway, obviously, we come back from we come from similar backgrounds in Nottingham. We, 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 bought, we bought up sort of the wrong side of the tracks sometimes. Um, it went a little bit pear-shaped when I left school sort of thing. Uh, we had similar uh, paths, you know, growing up in Nottingham, Paul coming from Bestwood. I'm, I came from the city originally. Uh, went a bit AWOL when I left school. Uh, there's a film, and we were just chatting, and, and Paul was saying, you ever seen the James Cagney film? The black, old black and white one from the 30s, I think it was. Uh, angels with dirty faces. Uh, I think it's about a gangster who um, obviously, you know, was a bit of a naughty lad in his youth and that, and became a gangster. Uh, yeah, I've seen it. I remember watching it years and years ago. Um, and he had the idea, like you know, because we both had, um, you know, sorts of uh, mixed fortunes or mixed adventures, mm. you know, in our youth. And uh, he, he came up with the idea about doing a dual book together. You know, um, I would change our lives around, you know, from being on the wrong side of the tracks to uh, eventually coming out the other side. Uh, and it was Paul's idea, uh, the, the title of Angels with Dirty Faces, what I thought was Excellent. brilliant. Idea. So, well, I think I think you kind of got, I think some people listening will have got the idea. Um, but Paul, I better quickly turn to you. And what I'd like to do with, with both of you is I'll spend a little bit of time, I think, asking you to introduce yourselves um, uh, because it, well, clearly we're talking to an audience here who's maybe listening to this for the first time. But Paul, I'm going to start with the same question to you. Why Angels with Dirty Faces? Because when you go back to that iconic film, and I say it's iconic, not because of the nostalgia of, you know, the good old days, but the tale of morality that underpins it. And you know, Jimmy Cagney is growing up. I think it's Pat O'Brien. And, they, they, you know, they're kids. Uh, Pat O'Brien goes into the church, becomes a priest. And Cagney plays the gangster. And, you know, all his misdemeanors. And it's often the way with gangsters. They build up, or naughty boys and girls, they build, they build up a bit of a, a cult following, a bit of hero worship. You know, the dark side of life is glamorous. Actually, it's not. Uh, but there's that perception. So these kids are, you know, are following Cagney and all his misdemeanors. And eventually the long arm of the law catches up with Jimmy Cagney and he's sentenced to the, uh, you know, to the chair, to death in the chair, which in those days uh, was, was in a public place. So basically, to cut a long story short, Pat O'Brien, I think it's Pat O'Brien, the priest, you know, from childhood, says to, you know, says to Jimmy Cagney, what I want you to do just before your death, I want you to cry like a baby, like a coward in front of these kids. I want you to lose face. 
And I want you to show the world and particularly these kids that there's no glory and you're just a mere mortal rather than this fearless somebody that's against the system, doesn't take any prisoners, blah, blah, blah. You've got a heart. You've got a soft heart that cares. And he said, I can't do it. I've spent my whole life on this track. I cannot and will not do it. So they're bringing him up from the condemned cell into the public place, the final few moments, so to speak. And it shows you all these people kind of baying for his blood, blah, blah, blah. But there's a half a dozen kids who are like, you know, Cagney's followers, if you like. And it's like, let him go, let him go, let him go. And they're crying because their hero is going to be executed. And Pat O'Brien looks across at, at Jimmy just to say, please, please do it. Cry, break down, show weakness. And Jimmy Cagney shakes his head as if to say, no, I can't. I'm going to go to my death, true to myself. And then just literally in those last few seconds, Jimmy Cagney breaks down and starts crying and yelling. Uh, please, 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 no, 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 no. And these kids, it's like they're disgusted because their hero actually was was not hero anymore. But the, the morality of the story is obviously what Pat O'Brien, it dispelled all that darkness, that glorification of darkness, of violence, etc., etc., etc. So it was really when, you know, I was thinking and talking about you know, Gary and I have had loads of chats over the last, you know, sort of few years around, you know, the good old days and how we found ourselves in certain circumstances and how we're in a different part of the game. Now, the game of life, we're in the second half and it's a completely different ball game. So it's this, I suppose, message really, Keith, to say that no matter what, you know, the first half of your life was like or whatever's gone off in the past, there's always room to change it in the second half. Thank you, Paul. I mean, I think that's given everybody who's listening a really good idea of kind of the theme of what we're going to discuss now. Because, you know, just to set the scene, neither of you two guys would probably have crossed my path. And if you had crossed my path when I was younger, I wouldn't have had to not be wearing the wrong coloured scarf for the football team because I might have ended up on the wrong side of your fists. Um, you, you you both got reputations in the old days, as we would call it, I think 70s, probably 80s, but more 70s, um, of being hard men. And what you're, I think, going to help us to understand why you've moved from that as, a, as an early beginning to where you are now. So we have to start with where you came from. Gary, can I, with you, can you set the scene? If you were just explaining to someone who hadn't met you... <laughs> What was what was your childhood like? What was what was going on in your world? Uh, I was born in the inner city. Um, Dad's from Cambridge. Uh, met my mummy on now out in Nottingham. Uh, I lived in the Snenton and the city part of Nottingham up till I was about five. Mum and Dad worked hard, really hard. Basically, I was brought up by my grandparents who lived on the next street, on the terraced uh, cobbled streets back in the day. Um, they wanted to make a better life for themselves, so we bought. They, they yeah, got on the housing ladder and bought, took a mortgage out in 1970. We moved over to a posh side in Nottingham, uh, so I could be go to better schooling. Uh, I, I, my my early days, all my life was about football. Really, I was I was just football mad uh, from as old as I can remember. Uh, went to uh, started school at an area called Clifton Primary School. Uh, swore straight to the football team and that was it really I was just all I was bothered about schools football football and cricket really sports um, left school I, I like fashion you know I got into fashion probably in the fourth fifth year at school so I got to football games on my own and, uh, and that's I noticed the fashion at football matches you know and uh, that intrigued me a lot you know I, I was more into the fashion and then became the music, and then I started going away games on my own, different visiting different cities. Um, and I noticed, like, you know, football grounds in them days were a violent place, to be honest with you. And I, I sort of, uh, I was intrigued by it, really. It fascinated me. I wasn't really scared about it. I wasn't really scared, which is funny. You know, I, I was fascinated by it. Um, and then I left school. I, I, I got beaten up a couple of times at football games, to be honest with you. Uh, and then I started to uh, 
sort of getting with a gang. And uh, I thought, well, I, I was a big lad and I stuck up for myself quite a bit. And I think that's where I fell off the rails a little bit, you know. I think it, it was, I, I don't know, I sort of attracted to the gang culture and I got into a, a gang, sort of gang culture. And then uh, in them days, you, there weren't many families went to football grounds. You know, it, it was a male-orientated sport. You know, and if you went to away games, you'd end up having to sort of defend yourself. Um, uh, and it, it was it was a free-for-all. You had to fight your way back to the train station half the time. You know what I mean? So that's where I probably uh, started getting involved in see, the gang. See, Gary, that's, it. That's, that's going to be an interesting thought in many people's minds as to why would you join a gang to fight and they would be probably thinking, as I am, what are you getting from that? Well, I, I mean, I didn't get a lot from it to start off with. I think it was just a case of uh, if you didn't fight, you'd get beaten up. You had to defend yourself mm. and understand where I'm coming from. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you'd go to a different city. It was a big adventure then, you know. <clears throat> Teams would come to your city. And you defend your city. I know it's wrong. We all know it's wrong and you shouldn't have done it. But <clears throat> I think it's <clears throat> 1970s Britain. <clears throat> I think you've always had it in the 70s. Sorry, Britain in the uh, 50s, 60s and 70s. You know, you go back to the um, uh, uh, rocker days and, you know, the rod mods and rockers. And then you go back to the telly boy days in the 50s. Uh, people have always defended the, the, their areas. It might not be another city. It might have been an area in the city where you live. Uh, I think it was just a British... Uh, well, it's probably in America as well, you know. It's probably not just Britain. You know, of, those, of, those, of those days, uh, and I'll just stick with you for a couple more questions, Gary. In those days, and the good news is I'm your vintage, right? So I know those days as well. You could yeah. go lots of different paths. You could be kind of a David Bowie, hippie, sort of chilled, relaxed individual. You could be a motorbike, you know, heavy rock, yeah. heavy metal, yeah. or yeah. football fan. But it seemed yeah. like, for you, because of the football, that was a logical thing for you to move towards. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You could have took a different path, you know, you could have took a peaceful path, a more, I don't know, a less stressful path. We're not getting locked up at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I was, I, I, casuals were just coming on the scene then. You know, seventies. Uh, I was a normal football fan. You know, I was a kid. I didn't really get. In, I never got in trouble in seventies. I left school in eighty one. Uh, I didn't get in trouble till I left school. I did get beat up at a football game when I was at school. You know, and I got threatened several times when I started going fourteen, fifteen. Um, and then I, I realised I could, I could stick up for myself. I, I sort of, I, I, don't know, I sort of fell into it. I love the fashion. Um, and then I don't know. I, 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 we know it's wrong, but I, I just went the wrong way. I took the wrong path. You got you know? football. You got fashion. Yeah. You've got mates. And yeah. if I could ask you this, it sounds like you also felt you were good at something, right? Yeah, I think you belong. You got the feeling you belonged mm. to something. You know. Um, yeah, I think it was the camaraderie. You know, a lot of that, and you know. Um, and you discovered women like like that buzz as well. You know, you was going to uh, another city for the weekend. You know what he's going to wear. You know, you come back. You know, you tell the tales, and you end up in a nightclub or a late late bar. And you know, you had your groupies as well. You know, it, it did attract the ladies as well. You know what I mean? Okay. So uh, I can see all the testosterone there. There's a big cloud yeah, of it around here. Yeah. One big yeah. buzz. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I got it, it got I got addicted to it. You know what I mean? Mm. You know, it, it, it was more about the clothes and the, and the days out. So, so just to be clear, because I'll turn to Paul in a second, but just to be clear, did, did you feel that you were running away from something and you had to prove yourself or was it you just got swept up with it? Well, I got swept away with it, but that school, you know, I was, I was never a, a violent person at school, but um, I got picked on a bit and got bullied and I stuck up for myself, you know, mm. and I ended up uh, having the odd fight towards the end of the, my school life and... Uh, and then I noticed I could handle myself a bit more than others. You know what I mean? I stuck mm. up for my mates, sort of thing as well. I didn't, so you I didn't... became a bit of an idol for some people. I, I would say so. Yeah, I would, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, okay. I would say so because that's, you know, that's where I am. You know, for, throughout my football life, you know, I've I become quite high up on the tree. 
you know, yeah. with, with the with the gang, if you yeah. if you know where I'm coming from. So, Gary, thanks for that. I've got to now turn to Paul. Slightly different for you, Paul, but the same sort of setting of the scene. Really, what was what was childhood like for you? And and can you take the listeners through it? Yeah. So before we go into that, Keith, I want to dispel uh, something that um, a well-known saying, cliche, call it what you will, about hard men. For me, they don't exist. There's no such thing. It's a fabrication. A man's hands might be quicker than another man's hands. It might take him longer to cry than another man. And, you know, the rule of the jungle necessitates that we give people labels. There's a pecking order. And, you know, that dictates that he's an odd man or whatever. And I'll say he, because we are talking from a culture back in the day where, you know, you would not you would not talk about a female in that context. Mm. It was a hard man, not a hard person, a hard man. It's a total nonsense because my take upon that, and it was at the time, even in the midst of being in that goldfish bowl, was if you lose a loved one, you cry. If you get caught, you bleed. You know, none of us are blocks of stone. And for me, certainly, the image that I put out there, and it was a consciousness, I think they call it the mask, was exactly of that, stern-faced, don't come near me, don't mess with me, and don't, because I'm not letting you inside. What I was really saying, Keith, was, please don't hurt me anymore, because I'm so emotionally hurt, vulnerable, and I'm dying inside. And it was well, this facade to keep people away, get in first, kill or be killed, big boys don't cry. But I can tell you this, and I know this from my own personal experience and having speak spoken over the years to so many people that have wore the mask and the label of hard man, it's all a front. And be interested to hear Gary's thoughts on that. Well, I I, I will, Paul, but I, I, what, I got the emotion there from you very, very strongly. And I think people would just want to know a little bit who don't know much about you, although you've got a great book out, um, which I've read and is available on audio, by the way, which mm. you can plug. Um, but people who don't know you, just a just a taster of what life was like for you growing up would would help me understand. Up until the age of age uh, eight, it was blissful. I lived with my grandma, my mother, and our little mongrel uh, dog Rocky. It was blissful, absolute blissful. Extremely poor. You know, bread and jam was the order of the day, even for Sunday dinner, but blissfully happy. I had the love of two matriarchs and, you know, my playmate, you know, and we used to, Rocky and I, Rocky was the defender uh, as I got my football, uh, you know, and I'd try and score the goal. And then my mother remarried. And then from it went downhill and I had six years of pure hell. Six years of hell, torture violence at the hands of my, my stepfather, who I called the beast. And, um, yeah, so that, you know, I needed an identity, Keith. When we talk about who am I, I'd lost mine. I'd lost mine completely because I'd gone from this fun-loving, easygoing kid that loved his, his mother, loved his grandma, loved his, his you know, Rocky, his, his beautiful dog, to just raw survival. And I had a choice to make. And I had that choice at 13 and a half, which was my first suicide attempt. And that was on the back of And When we talk about identity, I attached myself to a certain football club known as Nottingham Forest. And or, the to belief, fans, or to fans yeah, forest. Yeah, yeah, or to fans forest. And the belief that one day I would represent that football club and wear with pride that red shirt. Now, I did many, many years later, but not in the context that what I thought. So just be careful what you wish for on that one. So I had those six years, Keith, of those formative years. And in that time, I went through absolute hell. Absolute hell. And I just didn't want to live. But I found some solace in that identity, just as Gary found his on terraces with the crew and the boys, you know, the forest boys. I found mine in a different, slightly different way that, yeah, I'll play for the club. I'll represent that club because they are my world. And when they lost two football matches in 74 to Newcastle in the uh, FA Cup uh, replay and then Fulham, 48 hours, I couldn't go. That was it. I felt betrayed. So we have to be so careful, I think, of the identity that we give ourselves because mine was wrapped up in a football club. Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, so that that was kind of in in many respects, Keith, my formative years. Now the damage that was done in those first six years has took me basically most of my life to unravel. We're going to come through to that, and thank you both for your honesty and and openness. And I can sense the emotion when you both speak. But but Paul, your your story it shows me that you would be a very very angry young man. Gary, I don't quite get that with you. I almost feel like you're finding something which gives you a buzz. Is that right? Either of you yeah, I'm, I'll probably agree with that. Um, you know, like I say, all I wanted to do, do at school was play football and cricket. I was quite decent at cricket, to be honest with you. But then I discovered drinking. Oh. Um, you know, that's another probably wrong path I took. Um, you know, I, I was I should have carried on with my cricket. I was, but I it overlapped with football season and I was very young, 15, 16. I'd be stuck out in the country, didn't drive. And, and, you know, these guys were older than me. There was a couple of police officers played for the team as well, a couple of firemen. Um, I just Then I just started getting in with the boys down Nottingham with a gang, a gang culture at football. Um, I'd be stuck in some village, you know, 15, 20 miles outside of Nottingham. I had no way of getting back on Saturday night. Most of my mates had going down the city, having a drink by this time enjoying themselves I'll be stuck in a village pub listening to coppers trying to uh, ask me questions about where the boys are meeting next Saturday at the football you know and the older guys used to tell them to leave me alone on a Saturday night you know I had, I had this on a Saturday night in a village pub you know a couple of police officers asking me you know what, what's happening next what, next week at the football you know were you meeting you know the first game of the season um I was coming down with it, so I ended up packing up the cricket really, um, because I'd rather go down the football with the boys and get the buzz. You, you know. both talked about you both talked about. Oh no, you sorry, Paul. I, I, you didn't talk about it, but I know it from your background. Um, in both of your cases, drink played a major part, didn't it? Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I think it. I think I think it does. You know, like I'm, I'm, my 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 boy's good at football now. You know, he's only twelve, coming on thirteen this Christmas, and he's very good at football. Um, I think once you know you're not going to make it professionally, fifteen, sixteen. I think I could have gone further in cricket, to be honest with you. But I was very good, um, but drink did. Um, I, I drink took hold of me then. I started drinking, you know, and that that was the end of uh, any chance of being a professional sportsman. So yeah, it drink did take a big turn in my life. Big, is it so. something you you you've moved beyond? Well, you know, I'm I'm a weekend drinker, I'm a binge drinker, so you know I might not have a drink for two weeks, but then when I do go for a drink, you know, it'll be all day Saturday mm. and all day Saturday night. But okay. I'm a binge drinker. I've never I've never been an alcoholic or anything. Okay, you know, I don't go out every night of the week. You know, so but it it, it was you know binge drinking it isn't always good for you, is it? <laughs> No, no. Paul, not to go too deep, but just a, a few words. Oh, in terms of drinking? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very astute, Keith, what you've picked up about the difference between Gary, because the irony is as many as the parallels there are between our paths and our, and our mindset and our hearts and everything, you know, I often look on Gary as a kindred spirit. The, the, the contradiction of that we have took, we've ended up in the same place after all these years, our paths have crossed. But the paths that we took, in many respects, were very, very different. Yes, there is a commonality of words like violence, of Nottingham Forest, of drink. But my patterns in all those were completely different to Gary's. And the drink, I needed drink. I actually needed it. It was an addiction. And that was formed at my win-at-all-cost, survive-at-all-cost mentality, which was galvanised out of my childhood. You know, if you had a black cat, my cat would be blacker. And, and if yours was blacker, I had two cats. Anything you can do, you know, that addictive personality that, you know, like I say, that win at all costs. I was living a total lie and did for decades a total lie. And it's not until more recent years that I've bottomed it all out. You know, I'm 13 years dry now uh, and I see things so much more clearly. But I actually needed, needed alcohol to get by. I want to ask you both a pretty difficult question here. Um, you've both mentioned about your regrets and taking wrong paths and didn't like what you did. And so I'm going to ask you, Gary, this, which might be a difficult one for you. Have you forgiven yourself? 
Yeah, I have really because I, I um, we know it. Like I said earlier, we know it was wrong. But I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't took that path. And I want to make the people I met, and I've got friends all around the world through football, you know, and, and the good people. <clears throat> there ain't many bad people, you know. There's always bad apples in life, but you know, I met some wonderful people through football. Got friends in Germany, you know, Scotland, Wales. London, all over the world, really. And I want to make these people fans sort that path, you know. Um, I, I, I feel now <clears throat> I'm giving something back to football, you know. Um, I'm involved in grassroots football. Um, I feel like I'm putting a bit back, and I, I can talk to people and say, you know, why I went wrong. I, 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 the only regret I put I put my mum and dad up for a lot when I was young. Mm. <clears throat> you know, police knocking on the door at six o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> That's a big regret in life, putting my mum and dad through hell from 16 up until about, God, late 30s, really. You know, that, that, that has been a big regret. I mean, that's a positive, really positive re response from you. And I know both of you turned your lives around, no question about that. But, um, yeah, I think everybody has regrets in their life, don't they? But it, it's a question of whether you let that still drag on and whether you feel you're making amends now. Paul, what yeah, sure. What about you, Paul? Do you look back with regret or? No, I don't. Absolutely mm -hmm. not. You know, it's been hard. It's been very hard. It's been desperate. It's been dark. But you know what? And not we that we can, but I, and I know it's cliched, I wouldn't change one single thing. Mm -hmm. And it's been devastating at times. You know, the loss, the relationships that I've sabotaged, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people I've pushed away because I had this deservedness. I'm not good enough. You know, when you're told as a child you're a waste of space, you'll never be loved, you know, and then your mother's stepping in to try and defend you because you're taking a beating while you're being told as a child what a load of crap you are. That sticks with you, you know, yeah. and as much as you try and numb the pain with drink, it's just a temporary, temporary thing. It, You know, I got to the stage with my drinking very early on in my early teen years where it just totally didn't touch me at all because the deep scars of that mental you know, that mental, um, well, that mental scarring, it was far too deep. So I don't believe in the regrets. What we can do is get good people around us, get that arm around us and say, do you know what? Whatever life's thrown at you, it's OK. We go back to the top of this key, this, you know, where whatever we've been through, we've always got a second half. Go out to half time, reflect on the way you played the first half. Do you know what? You, you might have let a few goals in. But it don't matter because you can come out the second half. If they scored four, if life scored four goals against you, do you know what? You go out and score five. I think that's uh, that's a, that's, a, that's a great thing to remember. And and having that drive is something that you, I think you're telling me well, you wouldn't have had had you not gone through those that situation. Neither of you. And um, but let's lighten it a little bit. Let's lighten it a bit. So Gary, um, we're trying to find out the real you. And I, I would say that your music tastes probably haven't changed much, but I may be wrong. Give us an insight into your musical loves and hates. No, you're probably pretty, pretty right, really, on music. You know, um, late seventies, like Blondie, The Jam. I still like them to this day. Uh, early eighties, obviously, I like Wham. I like Brian Ferry, Roxy Music. You know, I came into the Football Casuals. You know, I liked all that sort of music, Soft Cell. Um, then into moving into the nineties, I like I like you two as well, like them. Moving to the nineties, uh, Oasis, The Verb, you know, sort of Brit pop like that. I like all that stuff, but I think the uh, music taste this day is still them. I mean, eighties is probably my favourite music scene, you know. Um, but after after that, the nineties, I, I still like the eighties and nineties music better than anything to this day. To be honest with you. And what about films and entertainment? What's what sticks in your mind? What were the best things you you've seen? Uh, yeah, I, I, I like I like a good film. Um, I like documentaries more than anything. To be honest with you, I don't like I don't like soap operas. I don't I don't watch much TV these days. I like a good documentary. I like uh, history programs. I like uh, like travel programs, like Great British Train Journeys and stuff like Marco Botello. I love watching stuff like that. 
you know, I can, I can watch that all night, stuff like that. I, I absolutely love this because I, I'm imagining an 18-year-old Gary with dressed in his casual clothes, which is, for those who don't know, was like the skinheads were just the, the boots and the jeans and the, you know, the braces, but the casuals were the far smoother, cleaner, shaven, you know, um, a bit of brute behind the ears probably as well, Gary. Yeah, it was but, been a the mod, not we? <laughs> When, when you're, if your younger self was to look at you now and you saying to me you like you like watching great train journeys on BBC Two, what was yeah. that for? I know you think I was mad, <laughs> but I, I've always loved travelling. You know, I've, I've travelled the world with England football team, Nottingham Forest. I, I, yeah, I love trains. You know, I love, I love beautiful train journeys. You know, and I, I just love watching documentaries on trains travel. You know, I could sit there all night and watch all that stuff. You know, because one of my pastimes has always been travelling. Mm. Perhaps that's why I became a football supporter as well. I love mm. geography at school. It's one of my favourite subjects. I was pretty decent at geography. Mm. So and I love I love a bit of history as well. I love, I love listening to history. Really you know. interesting. That's fascinating. So same for you, Paul. What, what, what about for you? Music and uh, entertainment in terms of films and so on? Books? Well, I'm going to, cancel, I'm going to concentrate because we've done this one, this kind of theme, uh, Keith, in the next chapter, chapter three. So I'm oh, going to okay. concentrate more on the, the film. And there's one that, I mean, well, there's a few actually, but there's one that really sticks in my mind and it's Wuthering Heights. Mm. Because of the precarious nature of my upbringing and that lack of love, mm. I crave things relating to love. And I can let this out, you know, the vulnerability that I've got now, which is my strength, I can lay it out the bag. There is no way you would have got this answer a few years ago because the mask mm. and the guard was so tight that mm. the Paul that you saw, you'd have got nowhere near close to him, mm. nowhere near close to him. But I could, you know, and this is a beautiful conversation, Keith, not just for obviously from our own point of view, but to actually sort of send the message out to to the world to say, do you know what, whatever it is that you've got or haven't got, be brave enough to show it to the world. I'm not saying make yourself wide open so the world can trample all over you, but I kind of mention, I mentioned that in the context of, you know, okay, so what is it that you really like, Paul? I had a saying for many, many, many years, only sad songs make you cry. I loved ballads, particularly Irish ballads, you know, and that sadness, that melancholy nature, because that was a reflection of my emotions, of my world. You know, the regrets that I did carry in a former life, you know, the anger that I carried for many decades. Why has this always happened to me? You know, still in victim mode, poor old me, rather than, you know, the, the place I sit in these days, which is totally the opposite. I used to love things like the Partridge family. There's no way I was going to admit that to anybody. The guys are like, they just roll all over me with that kind of admission. You know, you'd be called a sissy or you'd weak or... You know, whatever. But the the real mm. big film for me was Wuthering Heights and that tale of passion and you know um, and the particular version because there's been many renditions of that uh, was with Ralph Fiennes and Charlotte Benoche. I mean, blimey, I, I could watch it over and over and over again. Gosh, I'll reveal a couple of softer sides of both of you. I think. Who were your heroes, Gary? Who did you look up to? Who what, who would you put as your you know, poster on the wall when you were uh, uh, an 18 or 20-year-old? Uh, films, actors, I like Steve McQueen. He's one of my favourite all-time actors. I loved all that sort of stuff he did. Uh, I like Frank Sinatra, you know, as an actor as well as a singer. I used to love Frank's films. Um, I, love, I love war films, you know. I, I, I used to love the old war films. I like the older films better than the modern films, even to this day. Um, I, I like same with Frank Sinatra. I loved his music as well. You know, uh, yeah, I, I really liked Frank in the eighties as well and, and the nineties. You know, I listened to a lot of his music, got a lot of his stuff. Um, but actor, actors wise, definitely Steve McQueen's my favourite all time actor. Okay. Uh, footballers, I, I love flair footballers. Footballers that played a large part of me early days. Uh, I was a bit of a Leeds fan at school as well. Um, I, I love flair players like Tony Curry, who played Sheffield United in Leeds. Um, then it was like I, I like Glenn Oddle uh, playing for Tottenham. 
um, Stambols. I like them sort of players, Maverick players as well. Um, obviously, John Robinson at Forest. Uh, I, I looked up to great footballers, um, England players, you know. Uh, cricketers, I, I, I followed cricket in the 70s. I was a seem to get older, not CC. I used to bunk off school and watch the test matches and get caught by the teachers. Uh, I like the great West Indian team, Viv Richards, uh, Dennis Lilly, Australia. I watched all those players at Trent Bridge in the 70s. Ian Botham was one of my heroes mm-hmm. as an England cricketer. So I looked up to cricketers as well, sporting heroes, you know what I mean? Mm. Right. That's a hell of a list, actually. If you could pick one, who was your hero? Big hero. Big hero? In what? In sports or films? Or... I don't mind. If, if I, I've given you the choice of just pick right. one person, you can have dinner with them if I you think like. I think the Queen was the king of cool. <laughs> so I'd go for Steve Okay, great, uh, thanks. So, Paul, same, same, same thing for you. Well, I've got three words to say to Gary on that. Cool and Luke. <laughs> Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Was that ah. Paul Newman? Well, do you know what? It's, okay, well, that's a great intro because it shows how much or little I know about films. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was only one for me, and, and I'll go straight to the heart of the matter. There's two, from a Forest point of view, John Robertson, in my humble opinion, but Robbo was kind of later on. The one person for me, and, and that he, he did come from the world of football, well, there's two actually. One was Cluffy and the other one was George Best. For me, George Best, you can't compare. But, I mean, I can remember him seeing when he played for Fulham, him and Rodney Marsh in the latter latter years. And they played down at the city ground. Forrest eventually won 3-0. I think this was into sort of mid-late 70s. Pete, I mean, Best, he had put weight on. They couldn't get the ball off him. They couldn't get the ball off him. Mm. And the way the philosophy of life, you know, people judged him on his hell raising, his drinking. But to quote Frank Sinatra, best he did it his way. And I think when we look in life, you know, so long as you're not massively hurting anybody or you're not hurting anybody, not even massively. Do you know what? I think that's the greatest accolade we can say. I did it my way. The world might not agree with me, not, not like me, but so long as we're true to ourselves and we're not trampling over other people or causing pain, you know, I think that's not a bad way to live life. Do it your mm. way, but, but always be respectful of others. Thank you for that, Paul. Um, we've, we've gone through your early years, you, you know, your formative years, the, the sort of things that you used to get up to, both of you. How did you get to know each other, by the way? Um, as Gary alludes to, um, it was it was through Carlton Town and... I was comparing a Christmas dinner, Christmas lunch, with uh, one of the ex-Forest players, Paul Hart. And I met Gary there. Uh, I'd known Gary from, you know, early Forest days, and I reminded him of uh, oh, maybe 20, 30 years previously where I met him in a pub called Nottingham on a Saturday. Can't remember the game. and just said hello. You know, uh, it was in the Royal Children on Maid Marion where I remember it. it was a, like I say, it was a Saturday tea time and we just spoke and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. And um, as I say, met him all these years later and uh, we got talking and the rest, as they say, is history. Because, you know, there was just some cut for me. There was just some kind of I like Gary's respect. And despite his image of, you know, Gary this, Gary that, his manners were impeccable, are impeccable. Um you know, there was a gentleness about his spirit that I could relate to, that despite what the outside world would judge him as to use your terminology again, Keith, a hard man or a colourful man or whatever, I actually saw way, way, way beyond that. And I resonated with him. I thought, do you know what? I want to I want to get to know this guy even more. I like his spirit. And that was it, really. Is there, is there a, I mean, is there a sort of it takes one to know one sort of situation here? There was for me, yeah, and I do mm. agree with that. You know, you can, we can hide behind cliches all day long, but like does attract like. Mm. You know, I can remember when I was on the height of my drinking, you know, and I used to get in with a few of the old uh, travelling lads, uh, the Irish travelling lads, and one of them said to me the one day, he said, a drinker will always find a drinker. And mm. that's a great metaphor for life. Like mm. like attracts like. Mm. Mm. Gary, what's your, your recollections of meeting Paul? Yeah, we caught on town with the, the Paul Art um, fun, dinner fundraiser. 
as it happens, uh, we do one every Christmas at Carl, and I've been going for eight, nine years, ten years now. That's why I've become good friends with the club. And uh, I think it was probably three, four years ago, Paul, mm. and uh, just before COVID struck. And uh, obviously, I, I, I have a table every year. And uh, Paul was doing the comp here in that day. Um, obviously, you know, I, Mick, the guard, the club chairman normally does it. And he had, he had a rest this year. And he, he's a good friend of Paul's. And he's obviously with mutual friends. And uh, and Paul did the comp that day. And I thought it was very good. He, obviously, because he knows Paul Arks. He worked with him at Forest. And uh, he was selling his books, uh, one of his books anyway, that day. I think I bought a couple. Uh, I went over and bought a couple. Um, and then obviously Paul came over um, at, towards the end of the uh, function and gave me his uh, business card and says, oh, you know, I'd like to have a chat with you. Um, privately, I live in Spain now. I'm based in Spain. Uh, that's where we got sort of talking, really, oh, you know. Okay, cool. Um, Gary, one thing I've spectacularly failed to mention is that you have this nickname, Boatsy. Yeah, yeah. So tell funny. us, how did you get quite, that? Quite a funny tale, actually. I actually told people about this on Sunday at my lad's football match because obviously I've just done a, a documentary of Channel 4 and uh, it comes up obviously on the screen, Gary Boatsy Clark. So uh, Charlie's like football parents wanted to know what 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 where's the nickname come from. So I'm actually telling this last Sunday morning on a, on a field in the middle of Derbyshire um, what it was, um, obviously with the fashion and everything. Uh, very early, I think I was 16 at the time, we used to wear tight faded jeans and uh, various types of trainers, and these new trainers come on the market called Pima GV Lass. Um, we're having like sort of drain pipe jeans, and these had a big sole. And I've always had big feet anyway. I'm size 11 now, but I think I had size 11 feet at 13, 14. They had oh. like, bigger, you know. And I, I remember walking in the pub that Saturday lunchtime, Forest were playing somebody or other. I walked in the pub with these new trainers on, and uh, somebody shouts out, flipping out, they stood out, and they looked like boats. And then somebody says, just uh, uh, any boat scene. It's just stuck ever since. I've had that nickname since I was 16. Amazing, amazing, uh, amazing. Paul, did you have a nickname of anything that you can remember, one that you liked or anyone that you avoided? I did, but I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah. It got you into a few fights, did it, when people called you it or something There like was that? a lot of confusion. I, I got myself into it because, as you've alluded to, I was a very, very, very angry young man at an early age. I was mm. very confused around my identity, mm. you know, because of this. We were brought up in the Migler Bestwood estate. You know, there was uh, a lot of Irish families. I was very, very drawn to the Irish fraternity, very drawn. Mm. And I used the English lads used to, you know, well, you're just a paddy. And the Irish lads didn't like it because I had anything to do with the English. And this carried on for quite a lot. You know, so when we talk about identity, um, I, I grew up not angry, not only just angry, but very confused as well. And that, I think, I've always been a loner because I refused to take sides. You know, I can remember going into church, into Catholic churches, and the priest asking me, are you Catholic? And rearing up on him. It's none of your business what I am. Don't try and label me. I've got a heart. That's all you need to know. Mm. You know, being very deep, well, not defensive, but, you know, I think that, and this is why I've got such strong sort of views on it even now, Keith, because, um, you know, people try and put you in pigeonholes and boxes. You know, he's this, she's that, you know, he's Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, black, white, pink, gay, straight, rich, poor. And it just creates so much confusion and division in life. And that's why I've got strong views on, on that particular thing. Okay, thank you for that. Um, moving you, moving you forward. You both, you both had families, uh, you know, children, wives, sorted lifestyles, shall we say, in your middle years. Is that when everything changed for you? Is that when you thought I can't keep going down the path I've been down? Was it maturity, just getting older? Was that what changed you, or was something else that really moved you to do something different with your lives? I'll start with you, Paul. No, because I still had deep-rooted self-hate and deservedness issues, and I, and I actually sabotaged. I mean, when I look at the amazing, beautiful women, and I mean beautiful inwardly as well as outwardly, you know, amazing, amazing, that stuck by me through thick and thin. But I, you know, not just but with, you know, with the, the, the family, the women folk in my life, but people that got really close to me. Gary and I as a friendship wouldn't survive these days, in, in those days. 
because I'd have to push him away. I'd have to sabotage the relationship, thinking I'm getting too close to this guy. I love him. I respect him. I couldn't cope with that. It's like, no, okay, do you know what? It's easier to throw it out the window. So I'd start a fight. In the old days, I would have started a fight with him just to break the friendship, which was crazy because, you know, that's one of the big lessons learned around, you know, in this world. When you find good people, you invest in them, you know, you stick by them through thick and thin. But that, I suppose, is emotional maturity. It comes with age. Well, that's revealing, isn't it? How do you feel when you hear him say that, Gary? Uh, yeah, I find it a bit strange, really. Um, never really been like that, to be honest with you. I've always kept my mates close to me, and I value friendships even when I was younger. You know, I've had one or two fallouts with mates over the years. Don't get me wrong, you all do that. That's part of life, isn't it? You know, I fight with mates at school. Fights with mates when I've joined the Forest Lads, you know, there's always something happens over a girl or something, you know, especially when you're younger. You know, you fight over the ladies sometimes, don't you? You get a bit jealous. Mm. I have had tips and fallouts with mates over the years. I, I don't think I keep my mates close to me these days, like Paul says. You know, I've got a, a close circle of friends these days. I don't hang around in large groups, I don't hang around in gangs. You know, I've got, uh, I could probably count my mates on, on one, two, on two hands now, probably. I get on probably with my mates from different cities and different countries, to be honest with you, because that, but that's why we don't see each other all the time. You know what I mean? I think that, that that's that's a good friendship when you don't see each other every week, week in, week out. But I've got a, a close circle of friends in Nottingham. You know, I work with my friends, um, you know, so I keep my friends close to me. Yeah, I, f- I find it a bit weird that uh, Paul says that, to be honest with you. So... When when you hear that, I mean that, that clearly is from the heart from Paul, and it took some a lot of soul soul searching and rediscovery of what life was all about. I think Paul, for you though, Gary, what I'm picking up is more. It was more kind of a, a I'm putting that word out there again. Maturity. It's like you you sort of thought, okay, I'm beyond that now. I've got the family. I've got you know. Yeah. Is that yeah, right? I mean, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I've been married twice. My first wife, I was only about 29, she was 21. I was still heavily involved in the football gang violence and football violence. I think that ruined the first marriage. Mm. You know, that definitely ruined the first marriage. Because when she divorced me, uh, back in the day, you got five uh, reasons from reason, unreasonable behaviour. Nottingham Forest was mentioned three times in the five in the five okay. points. Wow. Uh, obviously, I've I, I, I matured a lot I, uh, over the years. My second wife, I married in I think 2011 um, we had Charlie in 2000 New Year's Eve 2009 2010 um, yeah um, you know having a family certainly changed my life because I got out of the football scene probably 2004 and I determined to stay away from it um, I had a slight setback in 2006 where I had a major court trial um, I was innocent anyway and got found not guilty in Crown Court. Uh, I could have easily gone the op- opposite way again. Then I met me, my second wife and we had Charlie. Um, so that did guide me in the right direction. You know what I mean? So And, and Paul, also you've had uh, relationships and children as well. And this is something about seeing this part of your own genes sort of looking back at you um, and a responsibility that comes with it that perhaps you don't have when you're younger, obviously. Um, when 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 we w- one thing we haven't touched upon is that we sort of skirted around the fact that you both difficult childhoods went into various situations. But for a lot of your all of your friends, a lot of other people that were sat in the classroom with you at the time, they're studying to do exams and studying to go on to do something in the world of work. So what what was going on for you two academically at, at that time? And maybe you can take it forward to where are you now in terms of of studies and and what you've done Let's start with you paul yeah that's an easy one um i had unfinished business there was a forest manager called billy davis in more recent times and he coined the phrase unfinished business at forest he'd come back for a second stint i had unfinished business because at an early age i was actually labeled as a child genius Ooh. but because of the turbulence that went off in my world i mean that distraction was you know became all dominant and I was into as I say raw survival you know to the point where all I wanted was a football and and that was it the football and you know just surviving on the streets um 
and I mean literally on the streets, on park benches, at an early age, drinking, you know, going with the Irish boys, drinking putchine and all that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, for me... Um, so school was way out. School was nothing. You didn't want to study anything. Well, there was one lesson I used to turn up for. Um, I went to an all-boys grammar school, which was very kind of ex-military, steeped in tradition. Uh, it's not there now, called High Pavement. Mm. from 1971 till 1976. Uh, let me rephrase that. I was registered there. My attendance was spasmodic, to say the least. But I used to mm. turn up for one lesson, and that was French. And the reason I turned up was the lady that took us for French, she showed me genuine compassion. She was really interested in why my world was falling apart. And she used to sit me down and, you know, kind of talk to me. And I'd really open up to her. And because she showed me that investment of emotion, I wanted to pay that back Gosh. rather than the male masters that basically jump when you, you're told to. How oh, I, sir, what now, sir? And I didn't do any of that. I used to turn up in like a pair of Doc Martens and Levi jeans, you know, when I did. Which in those days, in you know, early 70s, you had to have a uniform, presumably very much a uniform, yeah. yeah. And I didn't, I just, you know, whether what was the old kind of Jimmy Dean, I was a rebel with I don't know if I had a cause, but I was certainly a rebel because mm. I could not stand authority and mm. certainly not authority from males because mm. the authority that I'd had in childhood from my stepfather that that broke me completely. And it's like I was going to rebel, you know, even now, and people start dictating. To, particularly to others, I'm in there defending it. Mm. You know, as much as we do that inner work and that personal development, and we like to think we're sorted, we still have those triggers that say, do you know what? That is damn right wrong what you're doing. That's abuse and that's bullying. And, you know, this still that still runs deep with, with me when I see people yeah. being abused. And, you know, so, but I used to go to the French lessons and I actually come first in the mocks, in the exams, in everything which is unheard of because I come last in everything else because I just didn't turn up and I wasn't interested mm. and I wouldn't be bullied or dictated to. Mm. Très bien, Paul. Excellent. But just to bring in the, to, to you know, before you hand back to Gary, just to mm. bring in the unfinished business, for me, I left school with barely anything, which for a so-called child genius, and I don't do the labels thing, was like unthinkable. But in many, many years later, I was like a real coiled spring. Okay, I'll show you what I'm made of. So I went in, I did a foundation year, then I got my HND, then I got my teaching degree, then I got my master's degree. And then I got my first year of my doctorate. And by that time, Keith, I'd been in the academic circle. We've spoke about this privately, 11 years. And I passed the first year of my doctorate and the dean had us in at the end of the first year. And he said to me, uh, you've passed, old boy, but it's academic tosh. They were his exact words. It's academic tosh. By then, my attitude is this is a blueprint to help humanity. The fact that this full stops out the place or wrong words used, I don't really care because there's people dying on the street. So put your ac academic and your doctorate where the sun don't shine because I'm off. Mm. And that was in 2003. And mm. I had the opportunity, as you know, to pick that up recently yeah. and made the decision. Actually, I'm not picking it up. That was a long time ago. But I still think you're being very modest as to what you've achieved. Academically, it's pretty impressive, Paul. And coming from that background, uh, you could easily have not done anything further, but you but you but you have. Um Gary. Yeah, what, was, what was school like? Did you just think what the hell not doing this or were you quite Yeah, a good I was um, I was pretty bang average at school, to be honest with you. I could have done better. Uh, I've still got my school report somewhere in somewhere about anyway, and most of it says uh, don't concentrate, could do better. He's got talent, but he's, he just can't be bothered sort of thing. I, all I want to do is play football and cricket at school. I couldn't wait to leave school, to be honest with you. Uh, and I could have done O-level art, geography and, and uh, woodwork, but I, I didn't want to stay on it. It meant staying on another few weeks. And uh, I, I just had to sit here at GCSEs. I've got grade twos and all those. Really should have got grade one equivalent to an O-level. I just couldn't wait to get out of school, really, to be honest with you. Mm. Um I do believe you learn more by travelling um, in life eventually, you know. But like you say, I, I couldn't wait to go out of school. Uh, I didn't really like it. Um, so, I, as I say in my school reports, should have tried harder, should have done better. Is it, is it something you've you've stopped now or would you ever think to go back? Because in a way, 
it's never been as good as it is now in terms of what you can do in the way of studies. And... I, I, I know I've thought about it. I've thought about doing stuff like that, but I just haven't got the time. Mm. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. You know, I just haven't got the time. Yeah. Paul's gone back and done it, Anthony, which I think is great credit to him. I think he's yeah. done really well. Yeah. He's obviously a very clever person. You know, I learn off Paul every day. So, yeah, fair play to Paul, but I just haven't got the time. Yeah, the only thing I learned from Paul is how not to work with Zoom. <laughs> anyway. I know. Anyway. I've got... Um, I know we've got, I keep getting updates. I think we've got somebody else here. We've got another one after this somewhere. <laughs> you know. Look, we sort of rambled through and thanks both for your honesty and, and what you've said. And there's no judgment in anything at all. It's 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 just you telling people, you know, you, about your lives. And it's really interesting, both of you fascinating lives. But I want to sort of get into the meat of the thing as to what you're both doing now, because you're definitely both giving back. You're really exciting as to what you're doing. So, Gary, tell us more about this uh, grassroots football. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll be honest with you. Paul took me on board his charity during COVID. He's got World Game Changers, and mm. he's always run charities over the years, Auntie. And I got to know a lot about Paul during COVID. We did a lot of Zoom interviews. I did pieces for a book of his, um, and I'm still doing bits for Carlton Town. I've always gave to Carlton Town. I like to think I'm a giver rather than a taker especially later on in life. And uh, I've always donated a lot of stuff to Carlton Town. And um, during um, COVID, uh, you could actually, you couldn't go to watch league football and you could go and watch long league football when they started opening it up a bit. So obviously we went down to Carlton Town a lot. We quite enjoyed grassroots football. It attracted a lot of new fans. Uh, you can drink side of the pitch, you know, it's quite more, a lot more relaxed. Um, and one of the, the commercial manager of Carlton Town died during COVID. So there was a couple of vacancies at the club. Uh, it started off really by we did a big charity football match uh, with Paul, Will Game Changers and Carlton Town Football Club. And it was the first event after after the world lockdown, really. And we raised, I think we raised about £16,000, didn't we, Paul? Mm. We had yeah. about 700 people turn up to this event. Yeah. And uh, obviously what I've been doing with the charity and what I've been doing uh, Mick Garton, the chairman of Carlton Town, seen you know I, I, I've got a lot of contacts, and he's seen I can make I can make money. You know I can make uh, I could I'm good at fundraising. I think Paul's seen that as well, and uh, obviously there was a vacancy on the board. We left it a bit out of uh, respect to the families of the of um, Brian Danette. Um, and he invited me on the on the committee. He says, "Would you like to come on board as a commercial and fundraising yeah, marketing manager?" Uh, I felt humbled, actually, you know what I mean? And especially when we passed history of football and everything, I thought well, was the opportunity to give something back to football here, you know what I mean? And, and, and to grassroots football, where everybody starts. And I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Right. Paul, Paul helps the club out a lot as well. With World Game Changers, we've got a great uh, friendship there as well. I'm also a patron to World Game Changers still. You know, I'm still helping Paul with little bits here and there. I, I, although I haven't got so much time as what I used to have especially during COVID when you had all the time in the world on your hands. You know what I mean? Love it. Thanks, Gary. Paul, what are you giving back? I don't know, really. What would you like me to give back? Name your price. I'll meet it. <laughs> um, I think from, you know, how we play the game of life, when we talk about mastering the game of life, we never master it, but we learn to play the game a lot better to the point where mm. it serves us. And I mentioned that to answer your question, Keith, in the context of what am I giving back? I look at the six human needs, the need for certainty, the need for variety, the need for significance, you know, the need for love and connection. The fifth one, the need for growth. But ultimately, the biggest human need is the need for contribution, because even in my darkest hours as a child, I was always, you know, for me, my heart was naturally geared towards helping others. And, you know, that's grown over the years through experience. I've took, I've took the learning out of painful things and moved on from it. Um, and part of my giving back now, Keith, is to speak to people, try and help the best way I can in any capacity at all, you know, so that they don't have to go through the pain that certainly I went through. And pain doesn't even touch it because there's so much darkness and desperation, as I've said. So anything that I do really is kind of that giving back. Mm -hmm. Try and put myself in that person's shoes. What's he or she going through? What can I do here? You know, it's all very easy to start saying, oh, we're doing really big things. And there's some massive, massive 
initiatives that's you know that's being formulated with world game changes but you know what it's the real simple granular minute things in life that we take for granted that make massive differences i just want to tell a little story about that most people know of oprah winfrey now, Oprah Winfrey had a mentor at the time, she's passed now, called Maya Angelou. And Oprah come in the one day to, to Maya Angelou, a mentor, and she said, Maya, Maya, she said, I've got this great, great legacy thing. All these new schools in Africa for girls that are being abused. It's going to be the greatest legacy ever. We're going to save all these girls from, you know, sex abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Maya, the wise, quite old sage that she was, she just shook her head and she said, no, no, you're not. That's not your greatest leg legacy. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Have you not seen the numbers? Have you not seen the plans? And Maya, she said, Oprah, that is not your greatest legacy. You don't know what your legacy is. The legacy that you will leave is that stranger that you smiled at in the shop this morning. That little old lady that you carried the bag to to the bus stop or, or whatever, just that little small act of random kindness, that is your greatest legacy. And you know what, Keith, I think that's a phenomenal lesson for us all to learn because we concentrate on the big stuff, don't we? You know, the social media. Oh, look at this. You know, the hype. No. You know, for me, the, the game of life is a very, very, very simple game, but we've kind of lost our way as humanity and to me, to quote John Major from the 80s, it's time to take it back to basics and, and concentrate on the little small things in life that really do matter. Thank you, Paul. I think that will resonate with a lot of people. Guys, it's it's about time to to, to think about wrapping up. I, I, I'm going to give you um, just, just a little uh, a couple of sentences here, because what, what I think I've seen and what I've heard from you both was was really from the heart. And I love it. I know that you're recalling a lot of these things with a bit of pain as well as you as you as you talked about it. And it's come across. I could feel the emotion. But I'm also happy at the way that you both have shown, I think, to me listening and to others who will listen, you know, that there is a way through these things uh, and a lot of good can come out of it. No regrets, so to speak. Uh, there's a song there somewhere. Uh, no regrets, but, you know, you can move forward. You can do some some really good things with your life. And I suppose I just want to say, since this is about angels with dirty faces and now you're both angels, well, looking at you, I'm not quite sure that's true. But still. <laughs> what, what's one piece of advice? I know this is a trick you normally pull, Paul, on people, but what's one piece of advice that you would give to anyone listening about how to, how to handle the difficulties they're facing in life at the moment? Gary? Well, I think whatever whatever place you are in life, you you, you know you, I think uh, never give up. You know you could be obviously I've been at the bottom. I've been sat in a prison cell. You know my family didn't know where I was. I, I didn't tell me mum and dad. I had to make a phone call on the wing. Um, I had a big court case in Newcastle, and obviously I thought I might walk up until the very end. So I didn't want my mum and dad to go through the pain of, of months and months of. Of this, uh, of this happening, um, I kept it from them, and obviously the worst happened. I got sent to Durham Jail, and uh, I had to make this phone call on the wing, obviously to tell them where I was. That's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. You know, I was really at the bottom, bottom, bottom as low as I could go. Um, you know, I, I just believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Don't never give up. You know, you can turn it round, no matter how low you go. You know. Mm -hmm. So, Brilliant. thank you, thank you, Gary. Okay, Paul, last words from you then. It's simple, really, and I've alluded to it. I mean, there's 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 so many answers I could give to this, but to keep it in a football um, angle and you know mastering the game of life, you might be four 0 down at half time, but until that final whistle's gone, you're never out the game, never out the game. Great. Lovely to speak to you both. Paul, I'll let you say a few final words, but uh, my thanks to you for your time today. I um, really appreciated it. And obviously all the best of luck with the with the book. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Gary. Keith, thank you. Thanks a lot. And listeners, I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's not much to sign off with there. I mean, we, you know, we could wax lyrical about X or Y or Z or A or B or C, but I'm just going to sign off very simply by... Uh, by the way, I always do. But before I do that, I kind of just want to, you know, elaborate and say that um, with this Angels with Dirty Faces, we've all got things in our skeleton 
uh, skeletons in our cupboard. We've got all the things that we're maybe not quite so proud about. Learn to drop the mask of it and, you know, forgive yourself. Forgive yourself for whatever misdemeanors. Drop the self-judgment, you know, and just learn, learn to play the game in a different spirit because it will bounce back on you. And I sign off on that note by saying, remember, the game's changing. And ask yourself, how will you respond? Thanks very much for listening to this World Game Changers podcast episode. Hopefully you found it interesting and helpful. Drop a line to paul at worldgamechangers.org with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Remember, the world's changing. How will you respond?